Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So this week, New Caledonia, the French territory in the Pacific, has voted once and for all to remain French. Yeah, it was their third and final referendum on independence as part of what is called the New Mayor Accord that was signed in 1998. Yeah, and a staggering 96% of mm. people voted to reject independence. President Macron was quite pleased. Les Calédoniennes, les Calédoniens, ont choisi de rester français. Ce soir, la France est plus belle. Tonight, France is more beautiful because New Caledonia has decided to stay part of it, Macron said. But that's not the end of the matter, mm. right? Fewer than 44% of voters turned out for this referendum. And you have to know that close to half of New Caledonia's population are indigenous Canucks. Many are in favor of independence, but the independence parties had called for the referendum to be postponed. They said COVID restrictions made the vote unfair. And when the vote wasn't postponed, the parties boycotted it. So there are concerns that this could lead to unrest, as there has been in the past. So it's not what you could call a happy ending, at least for the moment. No, not for now. And that third vote is probably not going to be the end of the matter. There's mm. a lot of interest in New Caledonia. Um, about 10% of the world's nickel reserves are there. Um, mm. It's used to make stainless steel and batteries, mobile phones. That's a big one. There's lots of potential wealth, which doesn't really seem to be evenly spread throughout the community. The Canucks remain far poorer than New Caledonia's white population. Yeah, so some traditional Canuck uh, music and singing that so did you notice, Sarah, that at the start of Macron's speech about New Caledonia, he referred to Caledonienne and Caledonien? Yeah, male and female Caledonians. I mean, he does this a lot, male and female. It's an example of what's called inclusive language, right? Using both the masculine and feminine form of nouns. Yeah, French is a gendered language, but usually the rule is that masculine dominates. So if you want to get better gender balance, then you have to say both the masculine and feminine forms. So to say everyone, tous, you would say tous et toutes. Right. Normally you would just say tous. Yeah. Mm. Uh, farmers, you would say agriculteurs and agricultrices. And that kind of thing is happening more and more in speech. But with writing, it's a bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. And academics and linguists have spent years now wrangling over how to write French in a less gender-biased way. Right, because even in grammar, right, the masculine takes precedence over the feminine. Exactly. So people have come up with a form of inclusive writing that includes the use of dots. So instead of writing français, et Française, French people, male and female, you can write Français, the male version, and then a dot, and then ES, which picks up on the ES at the end of Française. Uh, I know it sounds a bit technical. Uh, it's easier to read than it is to spell out. But some people think it's sheer heresy. Yeah, I mean, four years ago, the education minister banned inclusive writing in schools. Uh, and linguistic purists and people leaning perhaps to the conservative right have presented inclusive writing as as, as, as a sheer threat to French civilization. <laughs> but that hasn't stopped it from progressing. And Rafael Haddad, he's written a guide to inclusive writing, and he set up a company, Mokle, Keywords, which, among other things, teaches companies how to use it effectively. He told me how it's developing despite the pushback. 
there is something which is quite strange in France. At the same time, you have a huge polemic on this topic, but in the same time, we can see that the components of uh, inclusive writing are uh, increasing. For example, now there is almost no one who claims that he is against the feminization of the name of work for women. 20 years ago, it was so difficult for a woman to say that she is, for example, a directrice, the feminine word for director. But no, this is something which is quite common. So where is the demand for inclusive writing coming from? Mainly cities and whatever is the position of the national government, the cities know that they need to deal with inclusive writing to be more close with their population. For example, in their website, in their magazine. And the second type of demand is coming from uh, HR services within uh, big corporates for exactly the same reason, in order to have more women applying to their position. So it clearly isn't just an academic debate or just a very Parisian thing. The demand is not coming from Paris at all. It's coming from all over the, the country. There is on one side the political debate which is very Parisian, very elitist. And on the other side, the reality of the evolution of the way people talk. And it comes from uh, all over the, the country. So ironically, the demand is coming from local government. And yet, on a national level, the government, the education minister, for example, is not at all in favour of inclusive writing. In fact, has, has banned it from schools. Absolutely. But if you go and see the declaration, there is a um, cognitive dissonance because on one side, he said we are against inclusive writing. Inclusive writing is unpronounceable and so on. But on the other side, he said at the same time, please use the feminine word for uh, positions and uh, be attentive that the generic uh, masculine should not be applied when we are talking about a position within the national education. And this is on the same document. So we're now entering into a period of campaigning for the presidential elections. Um, so what are you observing now, Raphael, in terms of the way that politicians and presidential candidates are using inclusive language or not? So first of all, we have to say that Macron is one of the politicians who pay attention on this aspect the most on his speech. And I think that this next campaign will give us a very clear opportunity to see that inclusive language and not only inclusive writing is something which is now very common, whatever is the position of one minister. So conversely, do we have some candidates or politicians who are very opposed and are not using it? Or are they just obliged to anyway because they've got to get the women's vote? Um, we cannot see that yet, but uh, we can remember that inclusive writing on another side, as an history in French, because of the French galanterie, you know. Women first. Yeah. For example, Charles de Gaulle used to say Française, Français, and it is not because he was an inclusive person, but because of the French galanterie. So I think that even for the far-right candidates, it's going to be very interesting to see how they deal with that and how they cross the gap between their political position and the reality of the world they use. So it's become political, or it continues to be. 
The gender-neutral pronoun yel, him and her, recently sent some into France into a complete meltdown. Yeah, these three letters, I-E-L, pronounced yel, it's a blend of the masculine pronoun il and the feminine el, mm-hmm. and it's used here in the way that we use they in English as a gender-neutral term. But it's turned into something of a national drama after the Petit Robert Dictionary recently included the word in its online edition. Reacting to this, the Education Minister Mr. Jean-Michel Blanquer said inclusive writing is not the future of French. Uh, other ruling party MPs have even talked about an ideological intrusion which undermines our common language. That's strong, strong language there. Yeah. All that for a three-letter word. It, yeah. And, and a rare one, right? I mean, even the dictionary itself says that it's only being used in some communities who identify as non-binary. It's definitely not being used across the board. No, so you really wonder where the accusation of a threat is mm. coming from. The Petit Robert has said a dictionary is a laboratory. It's not a conservatory. And and it's just doing its job of recording words as they're used. But the outcry has given a boost to people who resist inclusive writing, like the education minister, who said it is butchering the French language. Um, to get a better idea of where this resistance is coming from, I talked to a university professor, Eliane Viennot. She told me the reaction to the dictionary saga has a lot more to do with politics than with language itself. The right wing understood and some politicians understood that language since four years is a way of separating left and right. And they want to to please, to seduce the French population which is a little old, a little uh, conservative, uh, and they know it works. So they they take everything uh, that comes here, even if it's stupid. That is just politics. But it's worrying because in their reaction, they didn't just say that uh, yell is a word they don't like. They said, this publisher is wrong. And they dream about censorship. Some people have said, yes, it's about creating a certain amount of fear that, Fran- yes. that France is changing too fast. Yes, yes. It's very, very clear that they, they say it will be like the end of the world. They create a, a sort of climate where the young people are a danger, the people who say uh, racism is not okay, it's danger, sexism is not okay, it's danger, 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 everywhere. We have to say the past was better. These people think that they have tradition with them. And we feminists are the, the new foolish people who want to destroy everything. The revolutionaries. The revolution. On that subject, you say, we have the tradition with us. You refer to yourself as a professeurs. Of course, yes. of course, professeurs. In the 18th century, 19th century, people say professeurs. Voltaire said professeurs. In the Middle Ages, there were, there were juges, there were philosophes, oh. there were médecines. Un médecin, une médecine. That's completely normal because we say un voisin, une voisine. Or they say doctores. All the words exist in the French language. But really the, the most important words to define knowledge, uh, judgment, uh, uh, creation, uh, thinking, etc. Uh, so maybe 30 or 40, maybe 50 words have been condemned. And, and when did that happen? It starts in the 17th century when the creation of the Académie Française. 
Then at the end of the 19th century, when, when women entered the universities, a second group of words have been condemned. All the words which means the knowledge with diplomas. So, impossible to say avocata. If you have diplomas in the field of law, you will be avocat. Masculine words, not feminine words. The Académie Française condemn these words and they don't put them in the dictionary. Of course, this is all part of a much broader debate about inclusive language, which has tended to focus on the middle point. And uh, the education minister, Jean-Michel Blanquer, has been particularly critical of this, saying, you know, it's impossible to use, it will stop children from learning, he's banned it in schools. Inclusive writing is not just about that, right? No, it's peanuts. <laughs> this is just a, a sign to note an abbreviation. So it's just nothing. Nobody has to make abbreviations. If you want, you, you write all the words. You say les étudiantes et les étudiants. You yeah. can write everything. But usually we think that abbreviations are very useful to go quicker and to take less space. And it's not the feminists who invented that, that abbreviation. It's the Ministry of uh, Interior, Interior Ministry, maybe 60 years ago, that uh, started to write Francais, the E between parentheses. Yeah, to include the, the feminine, feminine to, but in brackets. Yeah, in brackets. We say, no, no, brackets are not okay. So Because we, it makes it seem as if the feminine side is somehow inferior. Less, less important or, or not important. So we tried the hyphen, we tried the slash, we tried the, the dot below. <laughs> And now we, we say maybe the, the middle dot is, is better. That are technical subjects. Mm -hmm. And they are crazy. They transform these technical subjects in a state affair. Je suis un peu ton fils. Et je retrouve en moi ta foi dans la justice et ta force au combat. En honneur déchu, malgré ta peine immense, tu n'as jamais perdu ton amour pour la France. So now we head back to 1894. On December 22nd of that year was the start of what became known as the Dreyfus Affair, which split France politically and brought to light deep-seated anti-Semitism, the results of both we still see resonate today in France. Yeah. Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish army captain and was accused of allegedly selling military secrets to the Germans. Yeah, and he was put on trial for treason. On December 22nd of 1894, he was sentenced to permanent exile in a prison on Devil's Island in French Guiana. Turns out he was falsely accused, and he was exonerated, but only many years later. Mm -hmm. At the time of the trial, anti-Semitic groups and publications jumped on the conviction. Dreyfus symbolized the supposed disloyalty of French Jews. Two years later, there was new evidence that came to light. It pointed to the guilt of another army officer, Ferdinand Walsan Esterhazy, but it was suppressed, and Esterhazy was acquitted in a court-martial. And this is when the affair became the affair. Yeah, yeah. To protest against that verdict, Emile Zola, the famous writer, wrote his letter, J'accuse, I accuse. It was published in L'Aurore, the paper run by Georges Clemenceau, who would later become prime minister. 
Zola was tried for libel for that defense of Dreyfus and his accusation that the army had covered up a mistaken conviction. Dreyfus's family had been fighting to clear his name. Their defense had not really gained that much traction until Zola's letter, though. The affair split France in two between the Dreyfusards, the left-wing anti-military who were convinced of his innocence, and the anti-Dreyfusards, which included many Catholics, who saw the affair as an attempt to discredit the army and weaken France. Dreyfus was again found guilty at another trial in 1899, though the president pardoned him afterwards to try to resolve the issue. And he was actually finally exonerated by a civilian court in 1906, more than 10 years after the first conviction. It was a great day of reparations for France and the Republic. This is Dreyfus himself. He was recorded six years afterwards recounting his reinstatement in the army. He actually served in World War I, though the army didn't publicly declare his innocence until 1995. Night? Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. They took a long time, time later. didn't they? Yeah. 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 So here he talked about how his affair went beyond his specific case and was about liberty and justice in general. The Dreyfus affair set in motion the left-right split in France that still exists today. It's also become the symbol of anti-Semitism, which was long present in France throughout the 19th century, but was really crystallized around this time. Anti-Semitic newspapers at the time coined this term France for the French, which we still hear today. Yeah, echoed by Eric Zemmour, who we talked about in the in the last mm-hmm. show. This is the now-declared presidential candidate. He's far-right, anti-immigrant, and he uses a lot of the same arguments against Muslims now as anti-Semites in the 19th century did against Jews. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, he's Jewish himself, Mm. but he's an apologist for French anti-Semitism. So his take on Dreyfus is that his conviction was justified because Dreyfus was German, which isn't true. He was Mm. from Alsace. Zemmour says that both sides in the Dreyfus affair had noble motives. The accusers were driven, he says, by their concern for the French nation. Bon. In October, Emmanuel Macron inaugurated the first museum dedicated to the Dreyfus affair. It's housed in Emile Zola's home in Medan to the west of Paris. The historical collection contains more than 500 documents, objects, photos, posters, and other things designed to give a full picture of what happened, maybe to set the record straight or maybe to keep it straight, as some might like to rewrite history. So housing, it's a big issue in French cities, in Paris in particular. Yeah, because some say uh, Paris is the most expensive city in Europe. Mm -hmm. So for students, it's a particular struggle, isn't it? A lot of students here in the capital, uh, they make up some 5% of the population. Yeah, yeah. And housing is also linked with loneliness. I mean, many people in cities, especially in Paris, find themselves living alone, students leaving their families, coming to school here, and also elderly people. Some 174,000 seniors, so people over the age of 60, live alone in Paris. And COVID showed the limits of all this, didn't it? For Mm. elderly people, 
often isolated throughout uh, the lockdowns, but also for students uh, who were sort of confined in, in tiny studio apartments. Yeah, yeah. So some programs have decided to combine these two groups of people. And actually, about a decade ago, introduced the idea of intergenerational living. So matching elderly people who have extra room in their homes with young people looking for a place to live in cities often lacking in affordable student housing. COVID did put a dent in all of this, but demand is is coming back up, particularly on the part of young people looking for housing as they come back to school. Um, I met one pair of recent roommates in Paris to see how it works. It's late afternoon, and Jeanne, a 21-year-old theater student, is having a cup of tea with her roommate. She might usually be having a beer, but she's embraced the tea time ritual with Brigitte, who's 70 years older than she is. Brigitte offers some cookies. Jeanne worries that Brigitte might be too cold. I'll warm up with the tea, says Brigitte. The two act as though they've known each other for years, but Jeanne has only been living here for three months. You get lonely, says Brigitte. It's nice to have someone to talk to. A housekeeper comes twice a week, and her sons and granddaughter come to lunch on Sundays. But until Jeanne moved in, Brigitte spent most of her days on her own. I'd been thinking for a while about how to be less alone. I didn't want to go into a retirement home. I thought I should find someone, a student or someone like that. She discovered Paris Solidaire, which matches elderly people and young students to be roommates. She saw it on TV. Jeanne, who moved to Paris from Lyon to attend theater school, knew about the program and knew it was something she wanted to do. What I wanted to do when I got to Paris was be useful to someone. And since that wasn't going to happen through my theater studies, I needed to find a way to be useful in my daily life. She and Brigitte hit it off right away. We talk about a lot of things, right, says Jeanne. Yeah, we talk about everything, says Brigitte. We're very spontaneous, both of us, really. I think that Brigitte and I complement each other a lot. We're both drawn to other people. We're quite dynamic. I needed positivity, someone who could give me a morale boost in my daily life. I think that Brigitte needed someone with good intentions and who could be present. And our personalities, well, we laugh a lot together. Brigitte asked Jeanne to close the kitchen window. In the kitchen, Brigitte has left space for Jeanne in the fridge and cabinets. In the living room, blue fairy lights are wound around a plant in the corner, standing in for a Christmas tree. Brigitte sleeps in a daybed here in the living room, explains Jeanne. She's been doing it for years, which means Jeanne gets the apartment's bedroom, which has a narrow balcony and a wide-open view of eastern Paris. For sure in Paris, as a student, my flat would be smaller than this room, and I would be on the top floor under the eaves. So I'm lucky. Jeanne worried about invading Brigitte's space, walking through her sleeping area anytime she wanted to go to her own room. I've always lived on my own, she says, and we're very close quarters here. I was worried I'd disturb her, but it's been fine. You need to make concessions, says Brigitte. It's like a marriage. Flexibility is key to this relationship. 
Jeanne has had to get used to letting Brigitte know when she's coming home. She has no obligations to do so. In their contract, she just pays rent and has no specific chores or duties in relation to her elderly roommate. But she knows Brigitte worries, so she's adapted. I tend to live my life without telling anyone what's going on. So in this case, I've had to take a big step towards Brigitte. But it's normal. I know her. And I know she'll be worried. So it's just human. Alors c'est juste humain quoi. Quand on vit avec une personne, c'est une question de respect. Oui, voilà. Enfin, voilà. En fait, c'est ça. When you live with someone, says Jeanne, it's a question of respect. Continues Brigitte. Je m'inquiète pour mes enfants, alors vous pensez voilà. que je m'inquiète pour elle. I worry about my children, so I worry about her the same way. She says that she too has had to adapt to give Jeanne her independence. You need to adapt, that's for sure. If you don't adapt, it doesn't work. What makes me laugh is that Jeanne eats at all hours, day or night. I have fixed meal times, and she knows that and deals with it. Adaptation, changing routines. For Brigitte, at 91 years old, having a 21-year-old roommate is a big disruption. But change is good, she says. It's good for me, you know. Change is youth. A bit is good. It shakes up the monotony. Brigitte's sons and granddaughter welcome Jeanne, as they can't check in on Brigitte more than once a week. They're happy to know she wasn't alone all the time. The relationship with Jeanne is a bit like that with her granddaughter. My weak point is that I'm always on her back to know if she's eating well or sleeping well. I have a maternal instinct. I'm sure I annoy her, but she doesn't complain. Jeanne doesn't complain, and that's perhaps the difference between this relationship and one they have with their own families. The two hold back in ways they might not do otherwise. Brigitte tries not to complain too much about Jeanne's use of her phone, though she has plenty to say about her own granddaughter and other young people today. I find that young people are always on their mobile phones and computers, she says. It's like their family doesn't exist. If you took them away, you'd take away half their lives. Yeah, says Jeanne, pushing back a bit. But you also have your tablet sometimes. Yeah, I play games to work my brain, answers Brigitte, but I don't bother anyone. Yeah, but in any case, we're from different generations, says Jeanne. Yes, adds Brigitte. On that issue, we cannot understand each other. Generational misunderstandings there. <laughs> but it does seem like it's working out for those two. How many of these kinds of roommates, Sarah, are we talking about? Well, so the organization have about 90 pairs in Paris, but around France are about a thousand. Some are like Jeanne and Brigitte, just roommates. Jeanne pays a bit below market rate rent and then they just live together. Others are in a more traditional sort of helper role where the student pays no rent but does have obligations to be present at night and weekends to help out the elderly person. So I imagine COVID has had an impact on all of this. Yeah, for sure. So demand dropped last year. Elderly people hold up, you know, worried about getting the virus. Students also weren't coming to Paris. They were doing a lot of classes online. It's now back up a bit. Students are coming back. Elderly people are realizing also how isolated they really were last year during the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's interesting. Their kids are starting to reach out to the organizations to set something up for their parents so they're not alone. So we've come to the end of Spotlight on France, and it's the last episode of this year. We're taking a break until 2022. We'll be back on Thursday, January the 13th. 
This episode was mixed by Cécile Bompiani, and we'd love to hear from you. Why don't you send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Or connect on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah.